our research team decided, all right, let's do a head-to-head test. Vegan versus Mediterranean using exactly the Prenamed protocol. We brought in 62 participants and half of them went Mediterranean. The other half went vegan. Then after 16 weeks, everybody stopped. We put them on the scale. We checked their blood pressure and their cholesterol, and then we switched diets. The Mediterranean people now started the vegan diet. The vegan people started the Mediterranean diet. And they did it for another 16 weeks. And then we put them on the scale again. And what did we find? Hi, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. Here to raise your nutrition and health IQ. We're doing that with you five days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday on Facebook and on YouTube, and right here via the podcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And today we are pitting vegan and Mediterranean diets head to head to find out which is better for weight loss. A new study actually put that right to the test, and one of the study's lead authors, Dr. Neil Barnard is here to share the results, and he's also going to be taking your questions as we open up the doctor's mailbag, and there was such a great one that we had to get to. Somebody wondering about fat and the brain, and wondering whether the brain actually signals you to crave fat if you're eating a low-fat diet. So how does the brain and fat go hand in hand? Well, Dr. Barnard is going to be diving into that. Plus, somebody wondering about whether you will regain a ton of weight by switching to a vegan diet if you've been on a low-carb diet like the keto diet for years and years and years. Will you automatically just pack on those pounds when you start to eat carbs again? Or can you maintain a healthy weight? We're going to find out as well, plus tips for building stronger bones and joints while eating a plant-based diet. Also today, we will be getting an update on COVID-19 from Dr. Barnard, because there are a growing number of doctors now wondering whether the virus can actually cause diabetes. They're seeing this in a growing number of people who previously had no history of diabetes before they became infected, but then suddenly they have it. And they don't even know if this is type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, or some form of it that they have never seen before. So we're going to be getting the data on that, talking about what we know and what we still need to learn in just a little bit. But today we do start with that diet battle. Head to head, the vegan diet, the Mediterranean diet. Which one is best for weight loss? Let's find out right now. Let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Barnard to the show to talk about this extraordinary new study putting vegan diets, Mediterranean diets head to head in the battle of weight loss supremacy. Interesting study, Dr. Barnard. Yeah, and really important because so many people are trying to think what's the best diet. And we've had more than a few people say, well, I really thought a vegan diet was the way to go. But then I read in a magazine, they said, no, you don't really have to do that. Just go Mediterranean 
frankly, it sounds kind of sexy. You're, you're maybe driving down the coast of Italy and you're going to have a glass of red wine and, and so forth. And, and so the question is, is a Mediterranean diet the best diet? Is a vegan diet a better diet? We decided to put it to the test. And let's let's talk a little bit about the Mediterranean diet. I mean, the majority of people I would assume who are hearing this and watching this right now are very familiar with with the vegan diet, the plant based diet. But then the Mediterranean diet, maybe not so much. So what what is the Mediterranean diet? The Mediterranean diet uh, really owes its origins to Ansel Keys. Uh, Ansel Keys was a researcher at the University of Minnesota. And I am guessing probably on some February morning, he was looking out his window thinking, what am I doing here in Minneapolis um, when I could be in Southern Italy? And he took a, a real interest in the, the health of Italy in particular because they had a, a pretty enviably low rate of heart disease. This is one of his graphs uh, going back to the 1950s where on the X axis, you see fat intake, more fat uh, as, as further up you go to the right. On the y-axis, you see deaths from heart disease. And look who's way up top on the right, the USA. Really fatty diet and a lot of heart disease. And going down a little bit, Canada, Australia, England. And then down, you see Italy doing much better. A lower fat diet, a lot less heart disease. And then at the very uh, left was Japan. Well, his compromise was, let's have a look at Italy. And so... The Mediterranean region is, of course, vast. It includes uh, everything from Spain, past France, Italy, and, and all the way around to Lebanon and Israel, and then all across northern Africa. So there are many, many, many different cuisines that could be called Mediterranean. But what he said is, well, wait a minute. We're going to say it means plant foods mostly, but not completely. And we'll have uh, locally grown foods, and your dessert will be fruit, not pudding or something. But when it comes to cooking fats, instead of butter, we use olive oil. So that's kind of the Italian influence. Uh, dairy products were included, but low. Uh, eggs included, but not too many. Red meat, some, but not a huge amount. And some wine every day. And that was sort of the definition of Mediterranean diets. Now, I can hear you screaming. You think, wait a minute. A Mediterranean diet could be a North African diet. It could be a Lebanese diet. Well, this was, this was, his, this was the definition that researchers have have really used of that, that term. Um, now, interestingly enough, modern researchers tend to think of it as being really oily, slathering olive oil all, all over everything. But Ansel Keys actually took as his model the town of Nicotera, Italy. And there, when they measured it, the diet was fattier than a low-fat vegan diet, but not, not as fatty as, as, say, a typical American diet. If they used oil, it was olive oil but they weren't using a lot of any kind of oil at that time. Okay, so uh, researchers recently put this diet to a test and the study was called Predimed. Predimed. Uh, this is a big Spanish study with more than 7,000 participants. Uh, everybody was at high risk for heart disease and most of the people were pretty overweight. Here's what they did. They split the participants into three groups. Group one, Mediterranean diet, plus olive oil, about four tablespoons a day to be used as part of your cooking. Group two, Mediterranean plus nuts, about an ounce per day. Group three, nothing, uh, just a controlled diet, meaning keep doing what you're doing. And then over several years, they tracked people to see what happened. Specifically, did you live or did you die? 
And what they uh, recommended, again, was the kinds of foods that Ansel Keys and others have talked about. Okay, so what happened? First thing, the first 12 weeks of the study, everyone got on the scale. Hmm, kind of disappointing. After 12 weeks, the average weight loss, that's, now that's kilograms, but that's less than, a, less than a quarter of a kilogram of weight loss for the oil group and about a quarter of a kilogram for the other, other two um, over 12 weeks. That's really terrible. Um, but then as time went on, they looked at who lived and who died and whether you looked at all-cause mortality, dying from anything, or cardiovascular mortality, uh, there was some suggestion that the oil group was doing better, but this was not statistically significant. The differences weren't big enough that you could really definitively say it was working. But then they did uh, another analysis and they said, well, let's just add up any kind of cardiovascular event. Yeah, dying, but also having a heart attack, having a stroke, anything, and let's lump them all together. And what they came up with was the control group, 4.4% of a bad event, but for the oil group, it was cut to 3.8%, and the nut group, it was cut to 3.4%, and that was their finding. Uh, they were able to take that to the New England Journal and convince people that a, a Mediterranean diet was okay. All right. However, some researchers said, I wonder if we can do better than that. They developed what they called a pro-vegetarian scale. So they looked within the pre-med people, the, the, the research participants, and they said, who here is eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts and cereals and legumes and olive oil and potatoes and generally avoiding meat and fish and dairy and eggs and animal fats? Because with 7,000 people, you had some people who were probably pretty much vegan. Okay, well, how did they do? Turned out that those people who were really strong on the pro-vegetarian scale, meaning they were doing the Mediterranean thing, but they were interpreting it not with chicken, but with chickpeas, uh, they did really well. The further you went out in the pro-vegetarian line of things, in other words, the, more, the closer you were to vegan, the less likely you were to die of anything, and specifically cardiovascular mortality, really unlikely to die of that too. Okay, so what this study suggests is that a Mediterranean diet at its best is interpreted vegan style. So you have your spaghetti, not with the uh, meat sauce, not with fish, but with a tomato sauce. Okay, fair enough. So our research team decided, all right, let's do a head-to-head -head test, vegan versus Mediterranean using exactly the Predimed protocol. We brought in 62 participants and half of them went Mediterranean. The other half went vegan. Then after 16 weeks, everybody stopped. We put them on the scale. We checked their blood pressure and their cholesterol, and then we switched diets. The Mediterranean people now started the vegan diet. The vegan people started the Mediterranean diet. And they did it for another 16 weeks. And then we put them on the scale again. And what did we find? Here's what we found. As the first 16 weeks were rolling by, the Mediterranean group, you see them at the top here, they lost, now this is kilograms. What is that? they dropped from 97 kilograms to 96 kilograms. <laughs> Not so good. Uh, but the vegans, look at that. They dropped from about between 98 and 99 down to uh, close to 90 kilograms. So much, much more robust weight loss in the vegan group. Then at 16 weeks, we stopped. Everybody was asked to just wait for four weeks, uh, go back to their old diet, and then start the 
opposite diet. Now look at the top. That Mediterranean group that was having trouble losing weight, now they're gone to the vegan diet, and now they're losing weight more, more quickly. The, the group that had been vegan in the first 16 weeks then started Mediterranean, and what happened to them? The weight started coming back. They're because why? They're eating fish. They're having some dairy. They're having uh, oil and eggs, things they weren't having during the vegan phase. And now they're starting to gain weight. Um, from a personal standpoint, I want to tell you that um, watching the participants go through these changes was really quite something. Many of them who were on the vegan diet, as you know, who, those of you who have done this, 16 weeks is more than enough time to accommodate to it. And you think, this is all right. This is pretty easy. And then when we took it away and said, no, now you've got to stop being vegan. You've got to go Mediterranean. Many of them were angry. And as they saw the pounds coming back on, they were pretty upset. And they couldn't wait for the study to be over so they could go back to their vegan diet. Okay, um, a little bit more complicated slide. Um, every pair of lines you see shows you the weight results that each person had when they went vegetarian and, or vegan and when they went Mediterranean. Go way over on the left. You see that little tan line sticking up there? That is the first participant and when he or she went on the Mediterranean diet, gained a little bit of weight. Uh, the green is on the vegan diet. That same person lost a lot of weight on the vegan diet. Okay, the second person, the tan line going up, that's another person who gained weight on the Mediterranean, uh, but their green line goes way down, so they lost a lot of weight. What these numbers show us is the green lines are almost all down. That's vegan. On a, green, on a vegan diet, most people lose weight. The tan lines are the Mediterranean. They're all over the map. Some people gain weight, some people lose weight. On average, you don't get anywhere. So what did we find? The average weight loss on the vegan diet, six kilograms in 16 weeks. The average weight loss on a Mediterranean diet, zero, nothing. Okay, now look at total cholesterol though. Uh, Mediterranean diet, people dropped three points, not worth talking about. On a vegan diet, they dropped almost 19 points. That's good. LDL or bad cholesterol dropped about a half a point on the Mediterranean diet. Just chance fluctuation, really. Um, on a vegan diet, dropped 15 points. That's clinically significant That's, and, and statistically significant too. Okay, now the, there was one good thing about the Mediterranean diet, and that was blood pressure. Uh, blood pressure actually improved in both groups, but it did improve a little bit more in the uh, Mediterranean group, nine versus three point drop systolic and seven versus four point drop diastolic. So that was better for them. But overall, we have to say there is a winner. If you have a person who wants to lose some weight, going on a Mediterranean diet as defined by these research studies um, with fish, with dairy, a little bit of meat, with olive oil, it's gonna really make it hard to lose weight. That fish, that dairy, that meat, is gonna be hard to get your cholesterol down. So a vegan diet is the way to go. Uh, let me share my screen and we'll come back in. I, a question for you, uh, that slide that showed the results for all of the participants, there were a couple of outliers on there. I believe I saw at least one individual that wound up gaining weight on both diets. How closely were you able to monitor what it was your participants were eating? Yeah. Um, well, these were real people in real life. We didn't lock them up into a, a research <laughs> ward or something. Like that. Now, there are studies that do that um, where you make every meal for them and you absolutely control it. We wanted to be able to say what will happen if you actually are doing this diet 
in your own home, with your own family, shopping at a store, because that's that's what, how people do do diets. And it's true. We did have uh, one or two people who gained weight on both diets. And uh, these are people who are probably having some trouble uh, following it. That's uh, while that can happen, the vast majority of people um, had a terrific result with the plant-based diet. And the results of the Mediterranean diet were variable. But overall for weight loss, it's really, um, it's really turned out to be a placebo. And that's important because a lot of people are attracted to that diet. A lot of people who really need help getting rid of weight are attracted to it. U.S. news rates, Mediterranean number one. I think that's because it sounds sexy. It sounds like people won't disagree with you. Um, but as a, as a clinical intervention, I think it's a mistake. Uh, I want to go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag. So if you have a question about the study that you would like to ask, go ahead and post that in the comments or in the chat box right now. Uh, another question real quick before we take our first viewer question is, I want to explore the blood pressure results a, a little bit more. Uh, why did you dive too deeply into perhaps why the Mediterranean diet um, showed a, a larger drop in blood pressure compared to the vegan diet? I don't think that it was like a huge difference, but it definitely had an edge. Yeah, um, they did. And we don't really know the, the, the reasons for that. Um, but we've known for a long time that plant-based diets do lower blood pressure and both of the diets did that um, to, a, to a good degree. Um, but what happens is uh, more vegetables will bring in more potassium. The more you avoid sodium, uh, the, the better off you're going to be with regard to blood pressure. But why why that particular result came out, it, we we're, we're really were not, not too sure. All right, let's go ahead now and open up that mailbag. We'll uh, start with uh, America Let's Get Healthy. Man, what a great screen name that is. Uh, and boy, how appropriate when you're talking about a Mediterranean diet here. Uh, they want to know, is it better to just eat the olive instead of eating olive oil? Anytime, absolutely. Um, there is no faucet on the olive tree. Um, so if you eat the olive itself, you get a little bit of olive oil, but you get the pulp and the fiber along with it. So nobody ate 40 olives, but it's really easy to get all of the oil from 40 olives if you take it as the olive oil itself. Now, now don't get me wrong. Um, olive oil is way better than chicken fat, way better than lard, way better than butter. Um, so people who are cooking with olive oil, that is better than the animal fats. Um, specifically, uh, chicken has about 30% of its uh, fat is in the saturated form. That's the bad one. For olive oil, it cuts that down to 14. So that's good. But using no oil at all, using a good nonstick pan, that cuts that saturated fat down to zero. Is the, we, we, I think maybe one of the more prescribed diets by doctors is the DASH diet for high blood pressure. But in, in the medical circles, how popular has the Mediterranean diet become as far as doctors giving that as advice to their patients? Um, it's become a popular thing for doctors to recommend um, because they, they sometimes think that the patient will react to it better than if you say you should go vegan because it sounds so easy to do. Um, the problem is that it's, it's really like a generation ago. Doctors were afraid to tell patients to quit smoking because it sounded too drastic. So they would say, you ought to cut down. And that's a mistake uh, because you don't get very far with that and you don't get very far with the Mediterranean diet, at least in the way that it's typically interpreted. Edith is wondering uh, whether exercise, age, and race, and all of those factors were considered for the study. 
Oh, yes. Um, when, when we do these, and, and you'll see this if you get your hands on the published report, we look at, at both groups and we try to make sure that they're as equivalent um, as possible as they start. But in this study, it was a little different from a typical randomized study where I'll take 100 people, 50 go vegan, 50 go Mediterranean, and then you see how they do, and you're wondering, are the ages comparable between the groups? Are the races comparable? That kind of stuff. Our study was different. It was a crossover trial. So everyone did both diets and you're comparing people to themselves. And so each person did both diets. And so the race, racial makeup, the ages and everything were identical because it was the people themselves that were um, the, the uh, point of comparison. And that makes it an extremely strong study. Susan was wondering, and I'm sure that I think self-reported here as, as far as the, the caloric, the food that was being eaten, uh, she wants to know, Susan does, whether portions were controlled in this study. They were not. Um, in both uh, diets, the way that they are supposed to be prescribed is without saying you have to limit your calories to 1,500 a day or something like that. In both cases, people were, were told to, to eat what they wanted. Now, we, we didn't encourage them to overdo it, but they, they were not uh, restricted in the calories that they would take in. And uh, there's a real quick before we open it up to a more broad spectrum of questions. There is a debate about why the term vegan was used in this study as opposed to plant based. Is that just kind of a flip of the coin for you? Uh, no, not it. Well, yes and no. Um, they're slightly different terms. A vegan, vegan diet means no animal products are used. So that's really clear. Plant-based to some people means uh, no animal products are used. To some people, it means I'm mostly going to avoid animal products. Some people just use the word plant-based to mean I'm vegan, but I'm embarrassed to tell people about it. And plant-based sounds nicer. Um, so we, in this case, used the word vegan and the participants understood that animal products were not to be included. So that was, that was easy for them. Yeah. And I'll tell you, inside baseball, from the media standpoint, I'd like to use the term vegan because far more people know it. And if the goal is to get more people interested in taking charge of their health and making it easier for them to find the resources that they need to do that, they're far more likely to search using the term vegan than they are plant-based. So that's why that gets used more often on the exam room, um, vegan does, than the term plant-based. So, yeah. Although, you know, yeah, I think you're right. But uh, things are changing and, and terms change over time. And, um, and we'll see where we end up on this. For some audiences, people really prefer the term plant-based. For others, they pr prefer the term vegan. I, I once submitted an article to uh, a major medical journal, and I used the word plant-based in the title. And the editor wrote back and said, no, this is a vegan diet. Use, use vegan. And um, I kind of thought they would like the term plant-based a little bit better, but um, no, they said, let's, let's be more specific. That's what it is. Uh, times change, and, and I don't fight about these things. There, there are times when one, one term applies a little better and the other term might apply better at other times. Absolutely. Well said, my friend. All right, let's go ahead and open it up to a wide range of questions here with the doctor's mailbag. We're going to start with a question from Apis. Wanted to know, will not eating enough fat in your diet cause you to overeat and tell your body to crave fatty foods? Um, probably not. Um, what will happen, though, is if you reduce the fat content of your diet, you will have some cravings for a little while for fatty things because your tastes are set by what you have been eating in the past four or five, six days. 
And people will experience this. Um, in fact, I experienced it in my own life when I was a teenager. My mom announced we were not going to have whole milk anymore. And she said, it's only going to be skim milk now. And we all thought it tasted really watery and it didn't even look right. But after about a week, we were totally used to it. And then I remember one day, some months later, she by mistake bought some whole milk and we couldn't drink it because it was like cream. And so the, the, the point that I'm making is that your taste buds accommodate to what you've been eating in recent times. So if you're used to fatty foods, that's what you're going to want. But once you get used to a lower fat intake, you don't, you don't want that at all. Uh, here's a great question from Tracy. We saw the 16-week study and the drop in cholesterol, but she's wondering how long does it take for someone to lower their cholesterol on a whole food, plant-based diet? Does it take that whole 16 weeks or does it happen sooner? I have it sooner. Um, I would, if you, if you are making a diet change now because you just left your doctor's office and you've got your cholesterol slip in your hand and you think, oh, I've got to do something, um, I would suggest that you go completely vegan, keep oils really low, and wait about maybe three months before you get tested again because you want to see kind of how far you can go. The truth is if you got tested within four weeks or even two weeks, your cholesterol would be lower even by that point. It's, it's really quite rapid. But to see the full effect, I'd, I'd wait two or three months. Question from Keeney, talking about helping people get healthy and reaching them. Just some great personal advice here. What is the best way to talk to somebody for the first time about the idea of adopting a plant-based diet? Um, when we have patients who come in to the Barnard Medical Center here, or maybe they're coming in for a research study, it's really important for them to first understand why are we recommending a diet? Um, let's say a person has diabetes. They have probably never heard that the fat that gets in your muscle cells is causing your insulin not to, to behave properly. And so I want to get that fat out of your muscle cells. And the way we do that is with a diet that doesn't have any animal fat in it and keeps the oils low. So once, once a person understands that, then they can go from there. So um, step one, understand why we're doing the diet that we're doing. Uh, if it's a low-fat vegan diet for weight loss, understand fat has nine calories in a gram. Carbohydrate has only four. So I'm not going to worry so much about carbohydrate. I'm going to really get away from the animal fats, get away from the vegetable oils. Okay. Once you understand why, two steps for jumping in, two steps for the how. Uh, step one, take seven days and don't change your diet yet. Like, let's say today you're thinking, all right, I'm going to go vegan. Um, don't change yet. Take the next seven days. And during that time, make a list of vegan foods that you would like to eat foods with no animal products. So for breakfast, um, hmm, uh, cornflakes with almond milk or veggie sausage for lunch, I'll have a pizza without cheese, whatever it is, make your list, take seven days and in this week, you'll, you'll come up with a great list. After that week is done, step two, take three weeks. And during those three weeks, make it all vegan all the time. No animal products at all. And see how you do. Three weeks is very short. So you can, you know, you can do it and you've already got your list. So it's very easy. At the end of three weeks, two things will have happened. Number one, you are going to be slimmer and healthier. You, you can feel the physical changes. The other thing is that your tastes are accommodating kind of like mine did when I was a kid to the lower fat milk, for example, as your tastes accommodate, you'll come to really prefer the vegan foods. So step one, uh, first of all, understand why you want to change. And then step one is take seven days to make your list, take three weeks to put it to the test. It will change your life. Next question comes to us from Gate, wants to know, how can I get my bones and joints to be stronger? 
Bones and joints. Um, if the question is bone density, like osteoporosis, you need calcium. Uh, green leafy vegetables, great source. There's some in beans as well. Um, secondly, you need vitamin D to absorb the calcium. And that comes from the sun. If you're in New Jersey this morning, you might not be getting much sun. So a vitamin D supplement may be appropriate for you. Most doctors recommend 2,000 international units a day. The vitamin D helps you absorb calcium from the foods you eat. Uh, number three, exercise. Give your bones a reason to live. And that's kind of the basics of a, a good bone building exercise. With regard to your joints, um, do get good advice from your doctor about exercise that you are doing. The more you exercise safely, uh, the better it can be. Some people use things like glucosamine and chondroitin, which are now vegan sourced, uh, which seem to have some evidence that they can be helpful for the joints. So hope that's helpful. Linda says that she went vegan because she's lactose intolerant. When she began, she was 138 pounds. Today, she's 115 pounds and wondering whether that is too little for somebody who will be turning 69 years old in just about two weeks. First of all, congratulations. I'm sure your digestive tract is happy that you've made this change and the rest of your body is smiling too. Um, to understand if your weight is in a good range, let me encourage you to go online and look for the BMI calculator. That's body mass index, BMI calculator. Uh, there, there are lots of them online. You plug in your, your height, you plug in your weight, and a number will pop up. And that's your BMI. And if it's between 18 and a half and 25, we call that the healthy range. What we mean is um, you're at the, the lowest risk for developing diabetes or heart disease or um, weight-related cancers, that kind of stuff. So you're wondering, am I too skinny? If you're below 18.5, the statistics would say, yeah, you are, you are too skinny. Uh, but have a look and you'll see. All right. Next question comes to us from Queen Logics. She says, uh, I do a lot of cycling and don't eat any oil, but the scale isn't budging. What am I doing wrong? Okay. Well, I'm not sure you're doing anything wrong, but, but here are the steps that we take. Uh, we make sure that there are no animal products in the diet. So that means we're eating lots of beans, vegetables, fruits, whole grains. And then we set aside cooking oils, uh, nuts. And for a person who's really trying to lose weight, we're going to set aside nuts, nut butters, avocados. That's about it. Um, and if you put that to work for most people, it's really hard to carry excess weight. If your weight is already in the good range between 18 and a half and 25, then you're not going to blow away. Your weight isn't going to really change very much because all you're losing with a low fat vegan diet is excess body fat. Ah, here's an interesting one from Tempest. How does a plant-based diet affect someone with hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, as opposed to someone who's diabetic? Uh, okay. Well, they both want to have diets to keep their blood sugar in the healthy range. And a vegan diet is great for that because, A, it has plenty of healthy carbohydrate. The carbohydrate molecules, uh, what they actually are, if you could look at a molecule that you took out of bread or a potato, it's... Um, sugar molecules all join together in a chain. That's good. They're glucose molecules in your blood. They break apart and they go to your brain to power your brain. They go to your muscles. They go to all the cells of your body to power them. Glucose is your power source. So if you're hypoglycemic, that means you don't have enough. So the healthy complex carbohydrates in a vegan diet, in beans and vegetables, whole grains, uh, and also in fruits, 
um, they will provide uh, the glucose you need. The other great thing that they do is if you choose the healthiest ones, they keep your blood sugar from going too high because you probably experienced this. If your blood sugar peaks because you ate, uh, say, white bread or something like that, your blood pressure went high, then your body reacted by making insulin that makes it go too low. So you wanna stay in the middle. Um, what are those foods? Foods that keep you in the middle are the low glycemic index foods. Beans, uh, in fact, let me just walk you through it. Uh, instead of sugar, don't have table sugar, have fruit. Fruit is sweet, but it's not gonna affect your blood sugar too much. Instead of wheat bread, you're gonna be better off with rye bread. Uh, instead of uh, kitty goo cereals, you know what I mean, the cold cereals, the ones that have a toy inside, <laughs> it's gonna spike your blood sugar, you don't want that. Instead, have oatmeal or have bran cereal that's steady on your blood sugar. Uh, one surprise, pasta is okay, it's on the good list. Uh, even white pasta, it's pretty good for your uh, blood sugar. Uh, potatoes, white potatoes, okay, but really a sweet potato is gonna be better for you. With all of these things, if you mix foods together, the, the net effect on your blood sugar, is just the average of everything. So let's say I have a potato and I thought, oh, that's gonna spike my blood sugar, but you have it with some black beans, then the net effect is it's more gentle on your blood sugar. So eat your beans, uh, eat your fruit, plenty of green vegetables, and you, you should be in the right zone. We'll take a couple of more here uh, while we have the time on the doctor's mailbag. So keep on posting yours in the comments or the chat. Here is an interesting one from Edith. This is something that I think a lot of people are struggling with right now, especially if you, you, know, you live here in the Washington, D.C. area where the forecast is calling for snow for the next three days. Edith says that she always gains weight in the winter. She tries to eat warm foods, but she just gets hungrier. So what is the best way to lose weight during these cold winter days? Yeah, um, you are not alone. Everyone, people watching this are all nodding, saying, that's me too. Um, it's your inner squirrel. Um, it knows that it's winter. And so in the same way that squirrels run around and they bury nuts in the fall and they try to dig them up to keep going, you've got the same thing. Our bodies are programmed to get hungrier in the winter. It's the cooler temperatures, the shorter days, and the darkness even uh, will do it. And, and by the way, it doesn't kick in in February. It starts in, you'll, you'll start experiencing this in about October and your weight will go up. And then this time of the year, the more you can get out and you see, um, hopefully, the occasional cloudless day, um, the days are starting to get longer. It takes a while for the temperatures to catch up. But with the lengthening of the days, you'll discover that that um, appetite boost tends to come down. Um, the best way to, um, to deal with excess eating is to make sure that everything in your house is something you're not too worried about if you eat it. So the snack foods are not chocolate. They're not potato chips because those pack in so much fat that you know where it's going to go. Uh, but things like fruit. Have an abundance of it. And if you have another banana or another orange or apple or some grapes, um, they're just not really very calorie dense. So um, make sure that everything that you are surrounded by is a healthy food. Low carb diets. Let's end with this. Low carb diets, all the rage right now. A lot of people think carbs are the devil. So here's a great question from Cindy. Wants to know, can you go vegan and not gain weight if you have been on a low carb diet for many years? Or is your metabolism damaged beyond repair at that point and you're just stuck having to eat that low carb diet? Okay. That's such a great question because so many people have done low carb diets. 
they eventually become disgusted by them or they've been told by their doctor they should stop it because their cholesterol is getting out of control or they're worried that they're eating meat and gravy and they're wondering, what's this going to do to my colon cancer risk? And I, I, I can't be doing this low carb stuff anymore. Okay, you transition to a healthy, low fat plant-based diet and typically weight regain is not something you're going to see. Now, it'll be a little bit of an adjustment for you to have made that change, but it's a good one for you. Uh, the only thing I would suggest is your tastes on a ketogenic diet have been goofed up. They, they tend to get fat oriented. So when you go to a low fat vegan diet, it will seem light to you. So make sure you have a real mix of foods with grains and beans and vegetables and fruits. Keep the oils low and give yourself about a week to maybe 10 days or two weeks for your tastes to come down to the lower fat taste. And your body is gonna be rejoicing that you've made this change. I encourage you to join us on Wednesdays over on Facebook and YouTube for the exam room live. That is your best opportunity to ask our experts like Dr. Barnard the questions that are on your mind. So go ahead and send them in. You can even do it ahead of time by sending them in to me on Instagram or on Twitter at Chuck Carroll WLC. Just make sure that when you send it, you use the hashtag exam room live. Lots of good data there. Lots of good data there. So let's go ahead and get some more right now as we turn our attention to COVID-19. The pandemic obviously is continuing. And what also is continuing is the fact that the virus is still somewhat of a medical mystery in some respects. Its symptoms and the damage that can be done to the body, it continues to amaze many in the medical field. And now a growing number of doctors are noticing that people who have had no history whatsoever of diabetes are suddenly becoming diabetic themselves after becoming infected with COVID-19. And stranger yet, they're not even quite sure what form of diabetes this is. Dr. Barnard and I had an opportunity to sit down and talk about what this data is showing. Time to get a COVID-19 update here on the Exam Room Podcast. As we record this, nearly 470,000 people here in the U.S. have died. More than 27 million have been infected. And now we are looking at the link between COVID-19 and diabetes. There is an alarming new piece of medical data out there that says that people who get COVID-19, perhaps that may even be causing diabetes. You see this headline right here in the Washington Post. It says it all new diabetes cases linked to COVID-19. And I wanted to talk more in depth about that. And to do that, I wanted to welcome Dr. Neil Barnard back to the exam room live to, to talk not just about what this new study is showing, what doctors are seeing now, but also about the risk of COVID-19 for people who already have diabetes. So Dr. Barnard, thank Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, let's go ahead and start with the risk for people who already have diabetes. What are some of the challenges that they face that people who don't uh, when they become infected? Yeah, this is so important, Chuck. And in fact, we saw this right at the beginning of the pandemic. Let me show you uh, a slide here. Um, when you looked, this, this, these are data from China. As soon as the pandemic emerged, people who did not have diabetes turned out to have much lower risk of dying of the disease than people who did have diabetes. In other words, if you, if you had diabetes, 
and the virus came into your home and you were infected with it, you were more, much more likely to die than people who didn't have diabetes. Okay. And then they looked at, it wasn't just, did you have diabetes? It was, was your diabetes in poor control? 11% mortality, good control, 1% mortality. And for people who know the numbers, uh, poor control was an A1C of 8.1%. Uh, good control was an A1C of 7.3%. Uh, if you have diabetes, you've been saying, well, wait a minute, um, I want to get below seven for good control, and, and you're right. The point being, if you got diabetes, COVID is bad. It's going to increase your risk of uh, a bad outcome, meaning you need to be hospitalized, uh, uh, need to be on a ventilator, need to be in the ICU, perhaps even increase the risk of dying. But if we get in control, healthier diet, getting, making sure your medications are up to date and so forth, it looks like we can greatly reduce COVID mortality. Okay, so that's where we were um, with that. But now, Chuck, uh, as you mentioned from, from the Washington Post study, we've got diabetes appearing in COVID-19 patients. And can I run you through the new study? Absolutely, you can. All right. What it was was a meta-analysis. And the reason we did it, or not we, but the researchers did this meta-analysis was because an alarming new trend was finding. It was exactly the reverse direction of the problem. It wasn't that uh, people had diabetes and then COVID was a problem. It was people got COVID, they end up in the hospital and suddenly they've got diabetes, which they didn't have before. Okay, here's what, what happened. It's a meta-analysis combining four studies done in China, two studies done in Italy, two studies done in the US, we put all the results together to see what we have, what we can find. Now, the average patient was uh, between about 47 to 65 years of age. These were the, the age ranges for people. And let me show you the, the results straight out of the paper. Now, this will look a little confusing, but let me walk you through it. This is what we call a forest plot. Uh, statisticians came up with that name because they thought it creates sort of a forest of data. Every line here is a study, every horizontal line, like the Li study from China, the Zhu study from China, the Wang study from China, and so forth. Then there's a little black dot that if the dot is to the right of that uh, vertical black line, then that means that people hospitalized with COVID were more likely to come down with diabetes. And as you can see, all of the little black dots are to the right of that black line. And so they then made the little red dotted line to try to create an average. And the average they came up with was 14.4% of people hospitalized with COVID are gonna get diabetes. Now that took us by surprise um, because what that means is that means that suddenly you've got a complication. That means the disease management of the COVID is gonna be harder because you, you didn't walk in with diabetes, but now you've got it. Uh, what's going on here? Why could this be? Well, it may be that some cases were just not diagnosed before, maybe. Uh, a more likely explanation is that when people are sick uh, from a variety of things, including infections, diabetes can manifest. In other words, they were teetering on the edge, but in their body's reaction to the illness, the diabetes becomes manifest with a high blood sugar. More to it, um, the virus, the coronavirus, will attack your beta cells. Beta cells are in your pancreas. They've got a big job. They are making insulin. And if the virus is attacking your beta cells, do you think you can make insulin normally? No, you can't. So your blood sugar rises and it's like you got diabetes, which in fact you have. Now the, the virus will do more. It can attack liver cells. And we have talked many times on this show about how when liver cells and muscle cells are filled with fat, 
the insulin resistance will kick in, but it looks like the virus can short circuit that, attacking the liver cells, causing insulin resistance very rapidly within a matter of days. What's happening? Okay, so A, you've got an infection. That means your blood sugar control is gonna be bad. B, your beta cells are being hammered by this virus, so you can't make insulin. C, it's hitting your liver, and so the, the liver doesn't respond well to insulin, so your blood sugar goes, goes up. Uh, the good news is that you can still recover with good care, and we do not know yet what happens to people who have been diagnosed with diabetes that seem to come from COVID, what happens to them in the future. When they recover from COVID, Will the diabetes be gone? Stay tuned. We're going to have an answer for you as time goes on. So that's where we are. That's, I mean, just a, a fascinating uh, study there. And I'm kind of left to wonder if there are dueling mechanisms there. One is that it reduces insulin production. And two, it increases insulin resistance. Does that make it type 1 diabetes? Does that make it type 2 diabetes or a form that we haven't even seen before? What a sophisticated question, Chuck. Um, I'm learning. <laughs> the answer, the, you are spot on. Uh, when the beta cells don't work right, that makes it like type 1. Type 1 diabetes used to be called childhood onset. That's because something has attacked the beta cells in the child's pancreas, so they're not making insulin anymore. And that can be sort of a partial thing. It can also happen rather gradually. Um, and you can see it in adults. So easy. what you're saying is exactly right. It's got that trait of type one. But with the liver being insulin resistant, that's type two. Um, so it's got really the worst of both worlds. Um, good news is that we know that insulin resistance can be improved. It's extremely dynamic, meaning, meaning it can change and it changes based on what you eat. And uh, research from our team, uh, headed by Dr. Kaliova, also showed that the diet can protect the beta cells to a degree. Uh, she's found that beta cell function seems to improve on plant-based diets. So bottom line, you wanna be on a healthy diet, but you also need to have really good medical care when you're dealing with COVID. You need to get the, the, the viral load has to be um, contained by a good, strong immune system, and you need good supportive care along the way. And uh, as we kind of wrap things up here, the best prescription that we have right now for taking care of yourself uh, is uh, make sure that you are eating that that healthy diet, get those uh, underlying conditions tackled. Um, and a lot of that can go down to, as, in addition, obviously, to wearing your masks and social distancing, washing your hands, those types of things. But make sure that you're taking care of yourself from a dietary standpoint so that you can attack those comorbidities before, God forbid, you become infected. And I I know that we uh, continue to do a program called Fight COVID-19 with Food um, here at the Physicians Committee. That's just such important work. What are the types of things that people are learning in that program? Yes, um, that is such a wonderful program. Um, and it's really for people who are thinking, gee, I need to knock off some weight. I'd like to get my diabetes under better control. Or if I got pre-diabetes, let me, let me get back to a healthier blood sugar. If I have hypertension, let me get better. And it's all focused on how to bring healthy foods into your life. And so we'll talk a little bit about the science. We talk a lot about the food. And the thing I like best about this is that whole families are getting together and they're watching it. So there may be one person who thinks, I really need to lose some weight, but they're kind of looking around thinking, you know, I'll bet you this would be good for, for everybody and the whole family. We have, we have had hundreds and hundreds of people watching every single episode. So I hope people will participate. And let me underscore something that you said, Chuck. Um, we do need to, we need to do everything we can 
to attack this virus. So that means masks, it means social distancing, it means good hygiene, it means judicious use of vaccines. Um, and it also means making sure that your, your uh, body and your diet are as healthful as they possibly can be so that these underlying conditions that make COVID a killer are contained to the extent that they can. Don't forego the medical care. That's important for you uh, if, you, if you're at that, at that stage, but do take care of yourself uh, starting now so that we're as resilient and resistant to the virus as we can be. Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much for your time, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. In the episode notes, you will find a link to all of our COVID-19 resources, including the Fight COVID-19 with Food course series. I am really hoping that we're able to turn the corner on this pandemic, get control of it very soon. And I am wishing everyone the absolute best in the interim. May you continue to stay safe and take care of yourself in the meantime. And we're doing our part to help everybody stay safe. Our mission is continuing. We are continuing to help people learn about the importance of taking care of themselves and learning about the food that they're eating and the harm that it can do to their body. But then with the right foods, the right fuel, the amazing things that it can also do to the body, just extraordinary things. And I think that on the show today, we did a lot of that. And coming up July 15th through 17th, we're going to be doing a lot more of that as well at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. This is a three-day conference online with some of the biggest names in health today, including Dr. Barnard. But July 15th through 17th, completely online. This is one that you're not going to want to miss out on. And through March 1st, there is an extraordinary early bird savings for just $299. You can get access to all three days of this conference. And if you're a student, it's just $175. And continuing education credits are available, by the way. So let's talk about some of the things that we'll be learning about at this conference. There's going to be a presentation on how to maximize the health power of foods from India. You're talking about putting healthy fuel into your body and how it can help it thrive. Dr. Anna Negron, she's going to be talking about using Latin foods in culinary medicine. Our own Dr. Carolyn Trapp, she's going to be talking about plant-based nutrition for diabetes. Dr. Hanna Kaliova, here's a great one how to eat to optimize your metabolism. And fellas, check out what Dr. Robert Osfeld's presentation is called. Erectile function and lifestyle. The long and the short of it. <laughs> it's true. Erectile function and erectile dysfunction so very closely tied to the food that you are eating. So we're going to be learning about that as well and so many other, more than 20 speakers 
on the docket this year. So that is July 15th through 17th. And you can register right now at that special early bird rate of just $299 for all three days. Just head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM, and you can find a link to that right now in the episode notes. Also in the episode notes is a link to subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are. And when you do subscribe, please also leave that five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star review helps to get this information into the hands of those who need it the most. Those who feel that they cannot turn the corner with their health. They've been struggling with their weight for years. They've been battling diabetes. Maybe they've been diagnosed with heart disease. So many other conditions that are out there and they just feel trapped and they don't know what to do. We would love to get this show to them, this information to them so they can feel that hope and know that it's not all said and done. There are things that you can do right now to lead that healthier life. So just by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee, you truly can help that person out and indeed help make the world a healthier place. And that is all the time that we have today. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and raising our health IQs. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>